thought I didn't realize what you were doing. Uh, hey guys, I'm Shayna. And I'm Sebra. And we are Real, Real Twisted, Twisted Sisters. <laughs> All right, today's case is uh, about Jesse Blodgett, but before we get started, I want to tell y'all that I had a very scary thing happen to me on Saturday night. Or was it Friday night? It was Friday night. Me and Seabray, yeah, yeah, me and Seabray went out. I got home pretty early because I'm an old lady and I was getting ready for bed probably around 11 o'clock or so. Um, falling fast asleep when I heard somebody trying to get into my house. I could hear the door rattling and I was like, what the fuck? And of course my dogs are still sleeping. They're not very good guard dogs. So I had to like push them. I'm pushing my dog to be like, get up and start barking. And I grab my gun, of course, and I go out. Well, it was a police officer at my door. Apparently, somebody had called in that they saw a female leaving my backyard with a backpack and a flashlight. So that was exciting. I didn't sleep at all that night. I didn't sleep very well last night either because I'm scared now that somebody is trying to steal something from me or get into my house. So I had to call Seabray. Yeah, so scary. And... Even the police officer seemed a little suspicious at first. I was like, mm -hmm. you need to call 911 and make sure he's supposed to be there at your house. Because yeah. he checked, he was at the front door and the back door, like yeah. wiggling the handles and shit. Yeah, he was trying to get in. And I just think it's weird that they got a call just saying a female was leaving the house or the backyard with a backpack and a flashlight. It had to have been somebody I know, I would assume, if they knew that it wasn't me. But also, it was just one cop that showed up that tried to get into my house after a call like that. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I was weirded out. I think, I don't know. Very suspicious. Yeah, so I got all my cameras set up and my dogs are now on high alert. Hopefully. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> all right, well, let's get started. Uh, it was 2011 in Hartford, Wisconsin. This is a very small town where everyone got along, for the most part. Jessie Blodgett and all of her friends attended the Hartford High School, where their main interest was concert choir. You see my face? <laughs> you don't like concert choir? I don't I don't know. I just think it's weird. Um I got kicked out of choir, so it's weird to have it's they seem like a very popular group of kids that are really into plays and singing. I mean I I'm could not... list the the girls in our school that were popular that were also like the choir play yeah. girls. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I just this this school didn't strike me as one that has um what do they call it? Like clicks. Yeah. Everybody just, it was small, so everybody just sort of got along, and they pretty much all were in concert choir. Only the most talented in the school, though, got into concert choir. It was a very big deal, and Jessie and all of her friends worked very hard every year to make it into concert choir. In our school, you just had to show up to be in concert choir. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like their, yeah, their concert choir, it was small, but it was, they did, like, they were all good singers, like, super yeah. good singers. Um, I don't know, our choir was not that good. I don't think. I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, it was decent, but it's not like you had to try, try out or out. anything. You didn't have to try out for anything in our school. No. If you wanted to play volleyball, you just played. Mm -hmm. Football, you just played. Mm -hmm. That was nice. Yeah. So, um, one of her friends, actually, Mariah. There's a whole group of them. Jesse, Dan, Mariah, Allison. Um, we'll get into each of them. Mariah was attending the same school and was actually walking with some friends down the school hall when they heard Jesse singing. So this is the first time that Mariah and Jesse met, and right away they became very close friends. Uh, Mariah said that Jesse's singing was unbelievable, that her Mariah and her group of friends peeked into the room 
saw that it was Jesse singing and of course right away told her you need to be in concert choir you need to do all this stuff with us try out for plays and such and of course they were friends since then uh, Jesse had dated a kid named Dan for a very short time in the early years of high school. Dan was outgoing and very popular and enjoyed singing and acting. They realized they were better friends, though, uh, than boyfriend and girlfriend, so they ended their relationship, but they stayed very close, often writing songs together. Like, they would do the whole thing. They would write the songs, they would play the instruments, they would sing. They were just all about it. That's mature for a high schooler. <laughs> it is mature, and Dan was actually writing a book, too, and we'll get into that, so... They did all sorts of very mature wow. stuff. Okay. I was impressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after, you know, they split it off, they weren't together very long, stayed friends. Dan started dating a girl named Allison. She was also in concert choir and got along with everyone, that whole group. Uh, Mariah, the one who found Jesse, was also very close to Dan, Allison, Dan and Allison. They all shared the same love for music and performing and were all very talented. After graduation, Dan and Allison took off to University of Wisconsin. Um, I believe it was University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Uh, Jessie stayed around the area, and she actually auditioned for a music course at the University of Wisconsin University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Say that ten times fast. No, thank University you. <laughs> uh, so say toy boat ten times fast. Toy boat, 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 toy boat. That was pretty good. Toy boat, toy boy, toy boy, toy boy, toy boy. Uh, God dang it. God damn it. Um, so, of course, you can see Jessie's audition tape actually online, and she did amazing. Uh, she blew everyone away. I believe her father was the one recording her in there. Um, but whatever. She was offered the spot at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And while in school, Jessie got a job waitressing at a local cafe. Everything was going great for her. Um, just as she had planned, she enjoyed college, she enjoyed her job, and she was still in touch with all of her friends. Halfway through her freshman year, Dan all of a sudden shows up at her work to surprise her. He had been gone attending, col attending college with his girlfriend, Allison, which is where Jesse thought he would be at the time. Well, Dan tells Jesse that he quit college. He dropped out and was going to be staying in Hartford. He got himself a job at a factory in town and was just going to take some time to figure out what he wanted to do in life. Jesse was excited to see him, but was concerned that he had dropped out of college. Just didn't seem like him. Yeah. Like he was really, you know, good in school, trying to work his way up in the world, and all of a sudden he drops out of college. Well, she enjoyed having him around. They would write music and sing together at least once a week. Uh, Dan would be over at Jesse's house. One day they were actually sitting in Jesse's room writing music. Uh, Jessie started singing some of the lyrics they had written, and Dan grabbed her to pull her in for a kiss. Jessie did not like that. She was not having it. She pulled away from him quickly and scolded Dan. Dan did still have a girlfriend at that time. He apologized, but Jessie was still upset about it and a little weirded out. She even went as far as to tell her parents how awkward it was. They did continue to be friends, but Jessie made it clear she wasn't interested in him like that, at least while he was dating Allison. It was now summer and Jessie was on a break from school. She was working as a waitress, or she was still doing her waitressing job and hung out with family and friends. She was very much looking forward to auditioning for some plays over the summer and going back to college come fall. It's now July 12th, 2013. 21-year-old Melissa Richards takes her dog to Richmond Park. After a long walk through the trails, she heads back to her car to get her dog some water. 
She thought she heard something behind her but kept moving towards her car. She then saw a man out of the corner of her eye, and when she began to turn, he started running at her. I'd shit my pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, oh, my God. Yeah, and she <laughs> saw then, as he's running, that he had a knife in his hands. But I guess her first instinct was to try to fight him back. So as he's grabbing her and trying to stab at her, she is fighting him back. They both then are on the ground wrestling. Um, she gets the knife away from him or whatever. He runs off and she contacts police. She's quickly sent to the hospital and police talk to her while she's in the hospital. She is badly cut and is bandaged up on her arms and legs. After she is released, police get, police ask if she will go back to the scene of the crime with them and walk them through what happened. They have Melissa meet them at the park for a reenactment. That's so mean. I can't imagine. It, I would be like traumatized. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, you can see that whole reenactment. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's it's scary. And she's still bandaged up at this time. Her leg is bandaged up. I mean, almost her whole like calf is bandaged up. Dang. So Melissa begins by walking through the parking lot, just like she had when she was walking her dog back to the car. As she was walking, she said she noticed a man sitting in his vehicle looking at her. As soon as she made eye contact, he moved back in his seat as though he was trying to hide. She said she said she didn't think anything of it, so she kept walking to her car. That's when she thought she heard something behind her. She saw a man out of the corner of her eye, and when she began to turn, he started running at her. He grabbed her and began trying to stab at her with a fillet knife. Oh, that's just gross, too. They were both on the ground wrestling, and she's fighting for her life at this point. She was finally able to get the knife away from her attacker. So at she, they're on the ground, though. So she's under him. He's on top of her. She grabs a knife and has a good grip on it. And he is trying to pull it back but can't. And he asks her then if he can just go. <gasps> yeah, and in the interview, she says she's talking to police, and she's like, I just thought it was the weirdest thing. Like, you're on top of me. Yeah. Get off and go if you want to. Oh, my God. So she says no, though. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, so she, he then, I'm sure she was like, no, you're not fucking leaving. I'm calling the cops and you can talk to them. Well, he then tried taking the neck knife back from her again. And she said, no, you can go, but I'm going to take this with me. That's when he took off running. So she, she was able to get a very good description of this man because he wasn't disguised at all. Yeah. Which is sort of scary. That means he probably was planning on killing her yeah. and wouldn't have a witness, but um, he wasn't disguised at all. She's told police he was a white male between 18 and 22 years old. He was blonde with fair skin, thin, and about six foot two inches tall. He was driving a dark navy blue caravan, but she wasn't able to get the license plate number. Now, Richfield, where this park is located, is about 15 minutes from Hartford, where Jesse and all her friends live. Uh, the whole area found out about the attack, and people started becoming very concerned. Uh, authorities put out a press release, and the story was all over the news. However, nobody seemed to know anything. No clues popped up that led to the attacker right away. Now, back in Hartford, Jesse and her group of friends didn't really know about the attack in the park, or at least they didn't follow it. Uh, they continued to lead normal lives. After trying to kiss Jesse and being rejected, Dan is spending more time with his girlfriend, Allison. Dan is working on writing a novel. He'd actually started writing this novel in high school. Allison is super excited about it and is encouraging Dan to pursue his dreams and to keep writing the book. The book is called Red is Red and is loosely based on all of the people in Dan's life. Now just keep this book in mind. Now after Dan dropped out of college, he's working on getting out there and being seen. He's performing in his band, he's performing in music theater, and he was great. He was a super animated crowd pleaser. 
Jessie also gets a big role in a show. She played the fiddler in Fiddler on the Roof. She was going to be performing the weekend of July 12th. It was a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three shows in three days. She was really excited about the show. That weekend rolled around and Jessie performs all three shows without a flaw. It was perfect. After the last show on Sunday afternoon, the cast and crew all went out to celebrate. It was a late night for Jessie. When she got home, her mom was still awake and they ended up talking about how the night went for a while. Jessie said that she had a good time, but that she thought two cast members were flirting with her. Jessie seems really funny in the way that she gets very offended when people flirt with her. Just the way she talks about it. Like, she wants to make a move she doesn't really like when guys pursue her, it seems, anyways. I want to see what she looks like. What's her last name? Yeah, look her up. Uh, Jessie Blodgett, B-L-O-D-G-E-T-T. Okay. Um, now, keep in mind, Jessie's show, that play that she was in, Fiddler on the Roof, took place on the same weekend of that attack in the Richmond Park. So while Richmond area police are still out there trying to find out who attacked the woman in the park, it took a few days, but they finally catch a break. As the story is going around the department, a deputy recognizes the, the vehicle that was at the scene. This deputy said that he had run a plate on the same type of vehicle parked in the same parking lot where the attack happened. And this was only a couple of months prior to that. The sheriff's office is able to track that plate that had been run by the deputy they find that it belongs to Melvin and Lauren Bartelt. They work on locating and talking with these people right away. On Monday, July 15th of 2013, Jesse's mom, Joy, is getting ready to head out for work. She drops off laundry into Jesse's room, and Jesse is still fast asleep. As she goes out the door, she yells upstairs to Jesse to say goodbye and that she'll be back that afternoon. Well, she arrives back at home around 12.30 p.m. for her lunch break, but to her surprise, Jessie still isn't awake. She did get back very late the night before, so maybe she was still in her bedroom. Joy walks up the stairs to Jessie's bedroom, still yelling for her. She gets into her room and starts becoming annoyed that Jessie isn't answering her, so she yells louder. She opens the curtains, which were still drawn shut. The light is now shining on Jessie's bed. She is there, but she is not responding. Joy gets over to the bed and pulls back the covers to find Jessie on her stomach. She reaches down to wake her up, and she's cold to the touch. Joy rolls her over, and Jessie is blue. Ugh. Oh, that just gave me chills. Yeah. Joy is horrified, of course. She immediately calls 911 to let them know her daughter is unresponsive. She also tells dis dispatch that Jessie's pants and her hair is wet. Jessie's pants are wet, and her hair is wet. And she's got strangulation marks on her neck. Paramedics arrive and pronounce Jessie dead on the scene. Joy then has to make the call to her husband, Buck, Jesse's dad, to break the news. The family is devastated. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. i take a drink there. That's not a phone call you want to make or mm -hmm. get? Or get, yeah. Right away, Jesse's family and authorities on the scene knew that they were looking at a homicide. It was very evident that her hands and feet were bound, and she did have marks on her neck that looked as though she was strangled with a rope or cord. Investigators get to work right away and began looking for suspects. They find Jessie's diary and see a new entry. It had to do with the night of her cast party. She said an older man had been flirting with her at one point, and he pulled. An older man had been flirting with her, and at one point pulled her onto his lap. She didn't seem to enjoy that. Of course, she doesn't like it. Yeah. Guys touching her stuff. She seemed to be a little upset by it. The investigators look into this guy and find out that he didn't go to work that day, that Monday that Jessie was killed. 
So that's a big red flag. And of course, they take off to find this guy. Unfortunately, after talking to him, investigators were able to clear him pretty quickly. He did not have anything to do with the murder of Jesse. While this is happening, the sheriff's office, who was working on the Melissa Richards attack case, is able to find Melvin and Lauren Bartelt. Remember, that's uh, the license plate number had matched their vehicle. After meeting with them, they realize there's no way it could have been either of them who attacked Melissa, as they're probably in their 50s and they did not match Melissa's description. They do, however, find out that Melvin and Lauren have a son who does match the description and who also drives their caravan quite often. They give police his number. Well, over at the Blodgett household, it is filled with sadness, anger, and anxiety. All of Jesse's friends showed up to comfort the family very shortly after word got out. Um, Mariah and Dan were both there holding hands, sobbing, reminiscing about Jesse, but also wondering what could have happened to her and who could be responsible. Now, Jesse's parents, Joy and Buck, were so thankful to have all that support right away. Um, they said the kids brought a warmth to the house during a very dark time. It is, I, it's, like, how would you feel about that? I don't know if everyone's coming to your yeah. house. I think you're in so much shock that you don't even really yeah. pay attention. Like, I think um, somebody, mom or one of my sisters said after dad died, there was lots of people at our house. I don't even remember any of that. That is true. I do remember my friends being there, but I thought that was, I know Sarah was there right away, but I think other friends came later on in the night, but I, I don't do remember any, I don't remember any of my friends coming or nothing. No. They must have. I'm like, I'm assuming Lisa at yeah, least well, would've. lived outside of the house. So maybe they went to your house. Yeah. But we all stayed there with mom for like a week. Didn't we? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Just You're just seems... in shock and you, I think, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were happy with it though. So everybody is in the Blodgett household. Uh, Dan and Mariah sat on the couch holding hands and consoling each other when all of a sudden Dan's phone begins to ring. He quickly removes his hand from Mariah's and stands up to take the call. It is a detective from the Richmond Police Department. They want to talk to Dan about the attack in the park. Dan lets police know at that time that he is at the house of the Blodgetts with his friends. Of course, authorities had heard about Jesse and knew that there was foul play involved. But that's really, you know, this is a police department for from the neighboring town. So they weren't like on the scene or anything, but they knew that, that Jesse Blodgett had been murdered. They find it strange that the person they suspect is responsible for the attack in the park is now at the house of a young girl who was just brutally murdered. So Dan goes down to the station and meets with two detectives. He is questioned about what he drives. And of course, he tells them right away he drives his parents' blue caravan. He is also asked if he was at the park on Friday which is the day the attack happened. Dan says no and acts completely dumb at this point. He says he wasn't at the park, but he can't remember what he did on Friday. Um, they did see a couple of cuts on Dan's thumb and elbow, but Dan ends up telling them that he, he tells him a lot of things. At first he tells him that he must have fallen and that's how he s scraped his elbow or got a cut on his elbow. Because you don't remember exactly, if you fall and cut yourself. Must have just fallen. <laughs> like that's one thing you would remember. Um, but then changes his story and says that he was pushing a cart at work and that is how he got the cuts. Well, so they ask him about his job and he says that he works at Associated Engineering. But little did he know the investigators had already contacted his employer because one of the days the van was parked at the park when that deputy saw it, Dan should have been working. So investigators press Dan a bit and he finally admits that he doesn't have a job. In fact, he never had a job at the factory he told Jesse and all of their friends about he had actually been taking his parents' vehicle 
and driving around all day. He would drive around. He would sit at parks. He would read books. He would write music. He would write his novel. He would get bored and kill people. <laughs> Apparently. So after going back and forth about the cuts on his thumb and elbow and realizing he got got, he finally admits he was the one at the park that day and that he did attack Melissa. Oh my God. He seems pretty calm about it and just tells them that he wanted to scare someone. He did a good job. He scared him. Yeah. Well, so they decide to talk with him a bit more. They ask him where he was before he went into the station that day, that day that they're questioning him. And he says he was at the Blodgett's and they, they start to try to get him cornered. So they say, oh yeah, that girl just passed away, right? Uh, they ask then if he knew what happened to her. He responds, well, she was raped and murdered. Only one problem there. Police didn't know about any sexual assault at that time, and the public definitely didn't know. So why did Dan say that? Dun, dun, dun. Uh -huh. They end up getting a search warrant for Dan's home and computer to see if there's anything connected to Jesse's case. He's already booked for the attack on, on Melissa in the park. Right. They find a lot of dark stuff. A lot of bondage pornography and several searches for spree killers and serial killers. So in case you don't know the difference, a spree killer kills two or more victims in a very short amount of time, and ser serial killers usually spread out their, um, their murders and attacks over a long amount of time, over an extended period of time. Um, so since they already have Dan booked for the park attack, they go to question him again about Jesse. This time they can tell that he's really trying to be more careful with his words. He tells investigators that him and Jesse had actually been having a romantic relationship, but they couldn't tell anyone because he was still with his girlfriend, Allison. Now, after asking Dan where he was during the day on Monday, he says he was driving around pretending to be at work. He went to a park and began reading and writing. He goes into detail and says he is writing a series of stories that involve a young girl who would eventually be murdered. The character in his book is named Jessica. Like, what a quinky <laughs> date idiot um but dan denies any involvement and soon asks for a lawyer investigators have to stop the interview they do head out to this park that dan says he was at on the morning of jesse's death and sure enough they find surveillance video of him at the park so is dan not our guy is there a murderer still out there in no, hertford it's gotta be him <laughs> Investigators aren't about to give up. While at the park, they begin searching everywhere. They are looking in bushes, buildings, and trash cans. And in one trash can, they find a cereal box. Inside of the cereal box, they find a ball gag, ligatures, and alcohol wipes. The rope they found matched with the ligature mark on Jesse's neck. When they searched Dan's house, they found the exact same rope in his garage and the same type of tape under his bed. They were piling up the evidence now. There was both Dan's and Jesse's DNA on the rope, and there was evidence that Jesse had been sexually assaulted, just like Dan said. Dan was, of course, charged and awaited his trial. Prosecutors had all the evidence they needed. Even though Dan pled not guilty, it didn't take long for the evidence to prove what he had done. Uh, he put a ball... I thought he was smart, but clearly not. Clearly not, no. He put a ball gag in her mouth, taped over it so it wouldn't come out, hogtied her, raped her, and then strangled her. I mean, he could be smart, I guess, and just doesn't know how to commit a crime. Yeah, I guess. Whatever. After only three hours of deliberation, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. Uh, you don't hear too much from him. 
Dan said his conscience is clear. He made no apologies to the family and said that he can't prove... Listen to this. <laughs> he said that he can't prove that he's innocent, but he also can't prove that the sun that he hasn't seen for 400 days while in jail still rises and sets, but he likes to believe it does. So he's got, he's just got one of those brains that works in a very strange way. He's just full of shit. Um, Jesse's father, Buck, said he believes that Dan is a sociopath. He has no empathy. He's brilliant and talented and knew how to fit in with people, but was a monster. That makes sense. Yes, for sure. Uh, one of the detectives on the case, Joel Clausing, he said that Dan was one of the most intelligent people that he'd ever interviewed. He had a sense about him that was bad. So everybody pretty much could tell. I mean, beforehand, they didn't know. They thought Dan was a super fun, good guy. They didn't know what he was what he was capable of. Um, the family started an organization called Love is Greater Than Hate. It's a nonprofit that focuses on inspiring and motivating people to choose love over hate and to also end violence against girls and women. And of course, I will put all of my source links and the link to that uh, organization on this case, on this episode. But that is it. Um, I feel so bad for Jesse Blodgett and their family, but I am thankful that that motherfucker is going to spend the rest of his days in prison. Yeah, and I hope he really does. Did you say without parole? Without parole, yeah. No Good. chance of parole as of right now. I mean, sometimes they change that shit. And they're like, he was on his best behavior. He was really good <laughs> in prison, God. so we're going to let him out. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the case, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any... If you have any cases that you would like us to cover or any comments, go ahead and send us an email at realtwistedsisters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at real.twisted.sisters. And if you would like to donate to the Patreon, we'll give you a shout out. If you do any donations, you can visit the website at www.patreon.com backslash realtwistedsisters. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.